Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 3, verses 29 through 31 this morning. I want to remind you that this is part two of a sermon that I had prepared last week. Uh, thankfully, because I had a little bit more time, I was able to expand, and, and uh, we're going to do something kind of fun this morning. Uh, last week, we did a, a lesson in Greek and Latin and a botched German lesson, and today we're going to do some math. So in just a little bit, we're going to do some math formula for you. But uh, So I want to kind of get to that. So let's just jump in real quick here to Romans chapter 3, verse 29 through 31. And again, I want to remind you that this is part two. So really, this sermon, this message is meant to be taken as a whole, okay? I, I, can't, I don't have time to go back and re-preach everything I did last week. So if you're here for the first time or you missed last week, I would encourage you to find that on wildwoodchurch.com. You can watch it. You can listen to it. You can listen to it on a podcast. But I, I encourage you to listen to that so that uh, you'll be up to speed. All right. Romans chapter 3, verse 29 through 31 says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you that you have made us forever yours, that, that in Jesus, with faith or by faith in Jesus, that we are justified, we are made righteous, and there's nothing that we can do to change that. And I pray, Lord, that you help us now as we explore where Paul feels the, the need to somewhat defend himself, I pray that you help us to navigate this carefully. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is this the Jewish God? No, he says, is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. When he uses that word or, he indicates that he's beginning a slightly new argument. He now appeals to the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, the best-known verse. So Deuteronomy 6.4 was to the Jews what John 3.16 is to Christians. It's the best-known verse of the Old Testament. And then he links, in, in his language, he, he links the Shema, the, the Lord, behold, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the Shema, the Lord is one. Then he links Deuteronomy 6.4, a very familiar Jewish ver Hebrew verse, Old Testament verse, to Zechariah 14.9. Also in the Old Testament, a prophecy. The Jews would have been very familiar with that, but it looks forward. And the prophecy is that this one God would be king over all the earth, and by implication, over all people. Paul reminds the reader that God is not just the God of the Jews, and he never was. When God made the covenant with Abraham, what was the blessing? What was the promise? That your offspring would be a blessing to, to the Jews? No, to the nations. 
right? That the offspring of the Jews, of Abraham, would be a blessing to all the nations. He continues in verse 30. He says, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So, so, so there's one God, that must mean that there's only one way of salvation. God doesn't have a, a certain way of salvation for the Jews and another way of salvation for the Gentiles. We are justified, Paul has already said, in verse 28, by faith, apart from works of the law. Jew and Gentile are both saved by faith, religious and irreligious, morally pious and the blatantly immoral, all saved or justified only by faith. He appeals to their confidence in their circumcision. He says, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. He appeals to the circumcision. They had placed all their confidence in their circumcision. I, I've said this before, but rabbis taught that, that no man who was circumcised had to worry at all about hell. So if your parents were faithful and they circumcised you on the eighth day, then you were in like Flynn. And now Paul is saying, no, you're in by faith. Just like every other person in the world. He uses that word faith twice for effect to emphasize that the only way that we come to God is simply believing the gospel. So your circumcision, you're saved by faith. You're not circumcised, you're saved through faith. There's no distinction. doesn't matter. I, I think it's just a rhetoric. doesn't mean anything by faith or through faith. The, the emphasis is on faith. So you're circumcised, you're, sa- you're justified by faith. You're not circumcised, you're justified through faith. You're baptized, you're justified by faith. You're not baptized, you're justified through faith. You're the third, fourth, fifth generation churchgoer, you're justified by faith. Today is your first time ever exploring any kind of religion. This is the first time you've ever stepped foot in a church. You're saved, you're justified through faith. You've kept yourself from all the big sins, right? I want to make sure that I put it in, in, in gigantic, overstated air quotes. You've saved yourself from all the big sins. You're justified through faith. You, you've walked in this morning in over your head in big sin. You're justified through faith. No matter who you are and no matter how you have lived, there is one way to be saved, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. When you are born again by the Holy Spirit and you have faith in Jesus, you come to believe the gospel, there is nothing that you can do to undo that. That's why I love this image on this banner of justification. There's a gavel there. 
What happens when a judge strikes the gavel? It's final. That's binding. That's authoritative. When a person comes to be justified by faith, it is final and binding. There's nothing that you can do, believer, born again by the Holy Spirit. There's nothing you can do to lose that. There's nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. And I read it last week in my benediction, but you can look up Romans 8, 38 and 39 to prove that. The, the reason that we can say this so surely is because when God makes us righteous, declares us righteous, he does so apart from any consideration of our works. The only thing that our works has earned us is condemnation. And so when God makes a legal declaration of our righteousness, he does so not based on our works, but rather upon Jesus. And Jesus doesn't change. You see, the only way that genuine believers could lose their salvation is if Jesus somehow became unrighteous, and that would never happen. Amen? Amen. So our security by faith in Christ is in Jesus' righteousness. And that is secure. That'll never change. Now, now, we have to get to this place because, again, last week, I'm all over here in justification. And I'm telling you things like, there's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. There's nothing you can do to separate you from God. And we want to get here, and we want to get to obedience, and we want to get to sin, and we, right? And we want to say, God still has a standard. Well, so did Paul. Paul is not going to deal with sanctification and holy living and God's righteous standards for believers until chapter 6. First, he lays the foundation. How do we begin to follow Jesus? We begin not based on our righteousness, not based on what we do, but on his righteousness. And he's going to get there in chapter 6. Once you're in Christ, the Lord calls you to walk in holiness and, and begins to shape you and mold you into his own image so that the things that he loves, you love, and the things that he hates, you hate. And he begins to prune the sin away from your life. But I feel like Paul felt the same pressure here in chapter three as I feel right now in this moment because that works-based righteousness is a subtle but ever-present reality in the minds of so many of us. And so I think Paul, Paul was accused of being an antinomian. He was accused of teaching a gospel that says there is no standard. God doesn't care how you live. He, there, there's no right way to live, no wrong way to live. Uh, your, your spirit is spiritual, your soul is spiritual, and your body is material, and we're going to separate the two, and whatever your flesh does, that's of no consequence because your soul is saved. It's called antinomianism. And Paul was accused of teaching that. And up to this point, you can understand why. We are, we are justified by faith apart from works. 
So here he, he quickly wants to deal just sort of to, to, uh, to take this off of the, uh, off the, out of our minds so that he can spend the next two more chapters dealing with justification. We're only like five verses into justification. And we've still got two chapters to go, right? But Paul, I think, felt some pressure, just as I feel, to say, yes, there is a standard of living for Christians. And now he says this. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So faith says there is no way that I am going to be able to achieve the demands of righteousness by myself. I need Jesus to do that for me. I need Jesus' righteousness or there's no way that I'm going to ever be righteous. I can never abide by the law. Then, once we've come to faith, then Jesus begins to work in us through the Holy Spirit. He begins to work in us to make me righteous indeed after I have been made righteous in identity. Does it matter the order? Oh, it's essential. Does the cart before the horse matter? Does the cart and the horse, their placement, does that matter? Right? It's essential. All right? This is an essential thing here. Now, I want to talk about two ways that we can err regarding the law. The first way is moralism. The first way that we get it wrong with the law is moralism. And this is seeking to obtain God's favor by observing the law. Seeking to earn our righteousness by doing the right things and abstaining from the wrong. This is obeying in order to avoid punishment or obtain favor. I had a guy sit in my office, and I love his testimony, and he's going to share that in a couple of weeks when he's baptized. But he, he sat in my office and he said, Brian, it used to be that I, I, I obeyed and I did things in order to not be thumped. But now I obey because I love the Lord. Now I obey because I love him. Right? Think about, think about any other relationship. When, when you have a relationship with a parent or with a loved one, maybe a spouse or a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, and you feel like the, the security of your relationship hinges upon your keeping them happy, then what do you do? You avoid, you walk on eggshells, you don't own it whenever you mess up because if they knew that you messed up, then they would discard you. And, and that is the life of a moralist. I, I have to obey in order to obtain or maintain God's favor in my life. Last week I referred to Paul's letter to the Galatians. He's rebuking them for resorting to legalism of the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of, of people that were syncretizing or blending Christian faith and Jewish religion, and they said, in order for you to be saved by Jesus, you have to first become a Jew. You have to first observe the ceremonial laws, namely, you have to be circumcised, and then you have to abide by all the laws, and then you can be saved. So faith is there, faith in Jesus is there, but first... 
Or in addition to that, you have to do all these things, and then you can be made right with God. And so Paul is, the whole letter to the Galatians is a rebuke of this false gospel that they had come to be, he, he, he says, bewitched. They were bewitched by this. He says this, and I referred to this last week, but here I'll read it again. Galatians 2, uh, Galatians 3, 2 and 3 says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, how is it that you came into right relationship with Jesus? By being good or by believing the gospel? He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? There it is. They, they, thought, that, they thought that somehow, even though they had begun by the Holy Spirit, they had begun by faith apart from works, they have to maintain right relationship with God. If, if they did something wrong, God's going to throw them away. And brother and sister, that's not just a Galatian problem. I know so many Christians who believe that if they mess up, God's going to throw them away. And, and they are the most miserable people to be around. Because they have no freedom. They're enslaved to moralism and legalism, and they don't, they, they don't operate knowing and believing that Jesus really loves them and gave himself up for them. Now, is it all that bad to say, hey, I mean, is that really a big deal? I, I think that we don't think that works-based righteousness is all that big of a deal because we're adding something good. Like faith is good, good works is good, don't do the bad things, that seems good. Is it all that bad to add something good to good? Paul says it's not only bad, it's demonic. And it deserves to be accursed to hell. Listen to what he says in Galatians 1.8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. How bad is it to add to the gospel even if an angel came and preached to you that you have to, be, you have to believe and do good works in order to be made right with God, let that angel be cursed to hell. It's that bad. And in my 15 years of ministry, I see it over and over again. This is one of those paradigms that we have to check at the door. We have to keep going. Maybe that's why Paul spends two chapters going over and over and over again. And it's going to feel redundant. And it's going to feel like we're in this for a long time. Praise the Lord. It's going to take a long time for us to work it out of our system. That your obedience is in response to being made right by, uh, with God. It has nothing to do with you being made right with God. So I want to invite the moralists, the legalists. I want to invite you to resist the inclination to pride yourself in your good works. I want you to resist your, that, that subtle urge of saying, I am in right standing. I had a lady 
This is a real struggle. A lady tell me the other week, uh, last week, that sometimes when she receives communion, that she asks herself, "Have I been? Have I done the right things this week? Do I deserve this?" And she and she she says, "I know that that is wicked. I I, I never deserve to take communion because that is the that is the opposite side." Whenever you see, whenever you start to feel guilt, start to feel bad, and well, I don't deserve God's love, then that tells me, and that should tell you, that there are times in your life when you think you have it all together and you do deserve God's love. And that is also a lie from Satan. You don't deserve God's love, He gives it freely. So resist the inclination to pride yourself when you're doing things right and to shame yourself when you're doing things wrong. Man, I, you know, I, your pastor is still a sinner. I mean, that's just a reality, and there are times, even this weekend, where I had to, had to get low before the Lord and, and say, God, why, do, why is this still a thing? Why, why am I still dealing with this? And I had to remind myself the gospel. I had to remind myself, I, I, I am benefiting from this too. I had to remind myself, I have been made right by Jesus so just own it, confess it, repent, and turn, and, and, and keep going, knowing that God loves me. That's what I had to tell myself all weekend. Right? <laughs> it's okay. Right? The second way that we can err is licentiousness. This is the result of detaching ourselves from any sense of moral standard. We're in, we're in Christ. We have complete freedom to do whatever we want. There's no rules. We detach ourselves from the law. Once Paul completes the foundation of our depravity in chapters 1 through 3 and, and in justification by faith in 4 and 5, he asks the question in 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So he's laid, the, he's laid the foundation clearly. There's nothing that you and I, sorry guys, we're working this mic out. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn our salvation, to earn right standing with God. We're hopelessly lost. We're dead in our sin. But then God declares us righteous by faith. And so then, once he's established that in chapters one through five, then the, first, the, the next question he asks is, what then shall we say, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That seems like the obvious next question. Once you have fully apprehended the weight of the gospel, there is nothing, 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 nada, nists, there we go, we got that right, that can separate me from the love of Christ. So should I just keep on sinning? Should I just live in sin? Am I free to just sin? That seems like the next obvious question. Nothing that you can do will separate you from the love of Christ. However, listen, to hear that and to feel the impulse, well, then I can just go sin and do whatever I want to, and then to act on that impulse and to continue to live in sin because, hey, grace abounds. 
And so I'm just going to keep on sinning and keep on sinning, and I'm going to live however I want to. I'm going to live with license to sin. Suggest to me that whatever experience you had that you called faith was not. That whatever experience, whatever response you had was not faith. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6 2. He says, by no means. There it is again. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So the question is, have you died to sin? Born again believer, you will continue to struggle in your sin, just as I do. However, as you see victory in your life over sin, even as you, even as you are watching the Lord work in your life, and he's, he's causing you to love him more and love others more, and he's dealing with sins, you're going to become more convicted of your sin, not less. You're going to become less satisfied in the sin that remains, not more. Sins that years ago you would have scoffed at and happily ignored now pierce the soft conscience of your heart and drives you to your knees in repentance. And praise the Lord that he didn't deal with every one of your sins the moment that you came to faith. Who could bear that? As the process of sanctification, of being made right in standing or in deed, just as you are right in identity. Now, we are released from ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Christ fulfilled it for us. But we still have the moral laws. These laws are summed up by Jesus, and Paul calls them the law of Christ. Jesus sums up the law of Christ as love you, the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, to be clear, no one has ever become righteous by obeying the law. But those who have been declared righteous obey because they love the Lord their God. And the moral laws are the authoritative will of God. Now again, last week, uh, Bob, come on up on stage. I've asked for a volunteer. Last week, we did some Greek and Latin and English and German. And today we're going to do some math. So I wanna, what I want to do here is I want to formulate a math problem so that we can understand salvation. Okay? So what I want to ask here or what I want to establish, I turn that, this is the question. Does works lead to salvation? Do works lead to, this is, this is doing good and not doing bad. It's, 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 it's uh, changing your life. It's, it's pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's, it's doing the right things. Does this Lead to salvation. No. Galatians 3, uh, uh, Romans 3.20. What does that say, Jacob? Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So what do works lead to? What do your good works lead to? Condemnation. Right? Eternal separation from God in a real place called hell. Jesus refers to hell as a place of, of fire, of never-ending fire, of torment. And this is what we earn, right? All of our good deeds get us this. I don't want this, and I don't want this for you. 
So let's try something else. Let's see if we can discern something else here. All right, so, so let's take works out of the equation altogether. And let's let these praying hands represent faith. And, and here, so works are completely out of the picture. They're, they're not in the equation at all. Is this a winning combination? Is this a winning formulation? And, and here, I want to, here I want to do this right here. All right, here's so those, those air quotes. All right, because here's what James says. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? You see, people pit Paul and James together and say, well, they're teaching two different things. They're not teaching two different things. Paul is is saying that we are not justified by works. And James is saying that someone who, who claims faith, here's those air quotes, who claims faith, but, but there's, no, there's, there's no life change in their, or there's no change in their life. James says that's a dead faith. So that doesn't work either. All right, so let's, let's then add works back in. So we're going to take the, the Judaizers. Uh, let's see, right here. Here we go. There we go. All right. So we're going to take the Judaizers, and I'm not trying to be hard on Catholics. I'll be hard on Baptists too. This, my friends, is the prevailing, even if we would deny it, formulation of salvation of many people in the church. Faith, believing the gospel, plus doing the right things leads us to heaven. That's the Catholic doctrine. This is the, the doctrine of, of purgatory. If you're, not, if you're not righteous before you die, then you, got, then you go to hell. Right? So you gotta be, you got to, you've got to work your way out. This is what this leads to. Does faith plus good works lead to salvation? No. Remember what Paul said? You, you change the gospel, you add to the gospel, let them be accursed. Faith plus works leads to hell. Supposed faith, again, I, 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 supposed faith, saying that I have faith that results in no life change leads to hell. Works, all, the, all, all of the, the desiring to do the right and abstaining from the wrong, all of that leads to hell. So what's the right formulation? What does the Bible teach? Faith, go ahead and move these two for me, Bob, go ahead and, uh, that one right there, and move it to the other side there. There we go, yep. Boom. That, brother and sister, is the New Testament doctrine of salvation. Faith, this is genuinely believing the gospel. Not just, not just giving lip service to it. Not just saying, well, I don't want to go to hell, so, all right, yeah, what do I got to do? I'll pray a prayer, whatever. 
This is genuinely believing the gospel. And when you genuinely believe the gospel, it leads to right standing with God. It leads to eternal security of your soul. And unless you're on your deathbed. And the thief on the cross was on his deathbed. And he didn't have the privilege of of this part. And that was the winning formula. But unless you're on your deathbed, then your faith also leads to good works. Now, now what are the good works? It's, it's living, loving the Lord, and loving other people. Bob, thank you so much. It's living in a way that honors the Lord. It, it's repenting. It's, it's, not, it's not pretending that you have it all together. It's repenting when you don't. Knowing that you are forgiven. It's apologizing. It's owning when you mess up. It's seeking to honor the Lord with your life. I want to spend the remainder of my time this morning. I, I think maybe that, that one of the things that I've witnessed over my time in ministry is so many of the kids that, that grow up in the church lead the church, leave the church when they leave home. So many kids, like 67%, statistically, 67% of kids that grow up in the church leave the church when they leave home. And it's got, it's got leaders everywhere wrestling, why, why is this and what, what do we do about it? Here's what I think, here's what I've observed, what I believe is, is at least partially, if not uh, primarily, the issue at hand. We have parents, we have parents that are here. Okay? So they, they come to church and, and they say that they believe the gospel. They say that they believe that Jesus died for them and, and, and that uh, they, they love the Lord. They say this and they say that they are born again believers and then they go home and there is no life change. They don't love their kids well. They don't model the gospel for their kids with their spouse. You know your marriage is meant to portray the gospel. And so your kids are hearing the sermons, they're hearing the gospel, and then they watch your life and it contradicts. And as I reflect in my experience on those kids that were raised in the church and left the church, this is what I see. Parents who say they have faith, but it results in no life change. And then watch this. They, they, they say this, they model this, and then they expect, you ready? This is what they model, and this is what they expect. If I'm going to love you, you're going to earn my love. 
If I'm going to love you, if I'm going to be proud of you, if I'm going to accept you, then you're going to work your way into my affection. And when I don't like what you're doing, I'm going to let you know about that. I'm going to make it very clear. Now, there's a, a, there's a difference between discipline and this. But this is, what, this is what we want. This is what we expect of our kids. Faith, go, go, you know, do the religious things, but then also I better see a change life if you're going to be right with me. All the while, parents, are living right here. It's hypocrisy. That is what I have observed. The kids who leave the church when they leave home are raised in hypocritical homes. Now, are there exceptions? Yes. Proverbs tells us, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from that. That is a probability, not a promise. So there may be some of you here who have been living this and you're teaching this and your child never gets here. That is a possibility. But it's a probability when this is what you model. We're going to spend a lot of time over the next several weeks unpacking justification by faith alone. It's easy to get it wrong. It's hard to get it right. But by the Lord's help, we will come to a solid biblical doctrine, understanding of the formula of salvation. We are saved by faith alone. But saving faith does not remain alone. It produces life change in our hearts. As we turn our attention now to communion, I want to give you an opportunity to examine your heart and ask yourself, okay, Lord, where am I at? Which formula am I using? Do I just say that I have faith, but, but I reflect on my life and, and I don't love you anymore today than I did last year or 10 years ago or 30 years ago? Or am I trying to be a good enough person to earn your love? Or am I going to try to add some religion to some good works and, and try to blend these together and hopefully that's going to lead to salvation? There's only one formula. Faith leads to salvation that changes our lives. Paul says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. As the worship team returns, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to examine your heart just a little bit. Maybe you're new here. Maybe communion is, is totally unusual. You never... You have no point of reference. This is, this is a symbolic act that Christians engage in to remind us of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. 
and it's, and it's for Christians because it's, it, is, it is a statement. I, I receive your broken body and your blood poured out for me. I trust in your sacrifice. I trust in what you did on the cross. And so this morning, if that's not you, if you're not there yet, I would encourage you to just leave the elements. But really what I would encourage you is for you to call upon the name of Jesus this morning and believe the gospel and ask him to forgive you of your sin and give you his righteousness. And then let him begin to shape you into the person that he wants you to become. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us to faith, a faith alone. But we thank you that when we have faith, you work in us and through us. I pray, Lord, that you help us. This works righteousness runs deep. Lord, help us to root it out. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.